Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When optometrist Perry Nelson disappeared one sultry night in 1983, it seemed the sad culmination of a downward spiral his friends and family had been helplessly watching for years. Perry had once been a popular and well-to-do eye doctor in a small Colorado town where he lived with his wife and two daughters. It seemed an enviable existence until Perry threw it all away. He said it was for love. He'd fallen head over heels for a new woman in town, even though that woman was already married when she arrived in Rocky Ford, Colorado, for the town's minister, even. The whole town had been scandalized. The plotline was a stretch for even the tawdriest of soap operas, and yet here it was unfolding in real life. Anyway, Sharon Fuller, the minister's wife, left her husband for Perry, and Perry left his wife Julie in return. Surprising no one in town, the couple's steamy start didn't automatically translate into a happily ever after ending. Sharon cheated on Perry with Perry's good friend Buzz, then started sleeping with another married man who did odd jobs for her here and there. The whole thing was a mess. So when Perry didn't come home one night, it wasn't all that shocking. A few days later, his car was discovered in a river, absolutely demolished. It appeared that Perry had gotten into a terrible wreck driving through the mountains, and considering that his recent personal turmoil had led to an increase in his drinking, well, it was heartbreaking, but not really surprising. Slightly more jarring was the fact that his body was nowhere to be found, though most people assumed it must have been thrown from the vehicle, what with the car looking like it had gone through a junkyard crusher. Those who heard the news seemed to be of two minds— Most felt Perry had died in a tragic accident, an inevitable end to a life in utter shambles. But some wondered if there was something more sinister beneath the surface, an insurance scam maybe that Perry himself was even part of. It would be several years before a series of revelations and another body unveiled the even more sinister truth, shocking small town Colorado and the rest of the nation. The woman at the center of the story ultimately had several surnames, Fuller, Nelson, and Harrelson among them, but she began her life as Sharon Douglas, born in 1945 to a family who not only strictly followed the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist religion, but whose patriarch was a minister within it. If you're not familiar with the religion's teachings, it's understandable. While it has some 25 million adherents, it's not one of the world's largest religious groups. According to the Pew Research Center, Seventh-day Adventists make up one-half of 1% of the U.S. adult population, 
It's an evangelical Christian denomination that dates back to the first half of the 19th century when, quote, preacher William Miller built a religious movement around his prediction that Jesus Christ would return to earth in 1844. Since then, the church has transitioned from being seen as a cult by some Americans to a more mainstream evangelical Christian denomination, end quote. That's from Pew. Now, you might wonder why people didn't abandon the faith when Christ did not, in fact, return on the predicted day in 1844. And to be clear, some people did. Sojourner Truth, a woman who had escaped slavery to become a famed abolitionist and women's rights advocate, was among those who walked away in the aftermath of the quote-unquote great disappointment of Miller's failed prophecy. But some devotees decided that Miller's ideas were sound, even if his read on the date was wrong. And that's how the religion kept growing, albeit modestly, ever since. Now, being raised Seventh-day Adventist makes for some pretty interesting stories. I know this because my neighbor was raised as such, and now that he's older and has decided that drinking is A-OK in his book, he can tell some tales. The gist of the upbringing, though, is that it's super strict. It discourages meat eating and alcohol drinking. Even caffeine is to be avoided, as most Adventists believe such substance use can hurt people and their families, not to mention hinder spiritual growth. Most believe the Bible is the Word of God, and about half say the book should be taken literally. For Sharon, growing up in this Seventh-day Adventist household, it was very strict. This is from an Oxygen Channel documentary about this case. Dad being very strict on her, so she probably saw men as being restrictive, and she felt that she wanted to be sort of free. She went about obtaining this freedom in an admittedly weird way, though. At age 18, she married a man in her father's vocation, a minister, author Greg Olson. Religion was so important to that family that when her family learned that she was marrying a preacher, Mike Fuller, they were elated. I mean, this was that Seventh-day Adventist family's dream. The marriage at first seemed pretty standard. Mike and Sharon had two daughters, Rochelle and Denise, who were five years apart in age. As Mike led a congregation in Durham, North Carolina, many from the outside saw a picture-perfect little family, at least for the first few years. By 1976, however, that facade had fractured. Sharon had fallen for one of her husband's congregants, a guy named Craig, who had all the attributes that Mike seemed to lack. Craig was the type of guy to read poetry more than the Bible. Mike learned about the affair, and soon after, his congregation petitioned to have the minister transferred out of state. Now, whether that transfer was actually related to Sharon's affair isn't clear. Minister Mike apparently told Sharon it was. According to her, Mike repeatedly said they'd been booted from the church because Sharon was a quote-unquote slut. In reality, the affair might have played little to no role at all because it seems the minister wasn't particularly beloved by his congregation and people were more than happy to have him shipped elsewhere, no matter his wife's extracurricular activities. Whatever the case, Sharon's affair with Craig ended when she moved with her husband and two children in the summer of 76 from North Carolina 
to their new home in Colorado. Sharon and her first husband wound up in the small mountain town of Trinidad. From the Oxygen documentary. But after 13 years together, their relationship fell apart and they divorced in 1976. He took the children and moved to Denver while Sharon remarried. The documentary makes this breakup sound pretty simple when it was anything but. Sharon had fallen for the aforementioned optometrist Perry Nelson, an elder congregant who was also married with children. The two didn't even attempt to hide their affair, which would soon become fodder for all kinds of town gossip. My dad was in practice with two other families. This is Tammy Halleck, one of Perry's children with his first wife. There was a doctor, a dentist, and my dad, the optometrist. All those families were also Seventh-day Adventist, and we did most of our socializing with them. The start of Perry's relationship with Sharon was pretty gross. Perry and his wife befriended Mike and Sharon as newcomers to their Colorado town, and then Perry and Sharon began making plans without their spouses. It seemed everyone in town knew what was up long before the spouses caught on. Anyway, Perry divorced his longtime wife for Sharon, while Sharon kept bouncing back and forth between her lover and her husband, who did not want a divorce. He took Sharon back time and again, trying to sort things out. I'm not sure why he was so determined to work things out with a woman he also repeatedly called a slut, but life is complicated sometimes, so we'll move past that. When Sharon finally did officially leave for Perry, people in town were flabbergasted. Both Perry and Sharon left not just their spouses, but their children. People seemed to accept that as understandable from Perry, a lust-driven man, but not from Sharon. Townsfolk chattered. How could a mother let go of her children for some man? Maybe she was never really into her kids after all. What kind of an abomination could treat her daughter so callously? My first impression of Sharon was more from people who had already met her, and they just didn't think she came across as a pastor's wife. There were people who thought Sharon was, you know, very flirty and inappropriate. Now, even before Sharon left Mike, she had worked for Perry in one of his optometry offices, which is, of course, always a good idea. Definitely hire your lover to work in your business. That never backfires. Sharon wasn't a great worker, or even a good one. She often berated customers who complained about her bedside manner. Another staffer who had worked for Perry a really long time watched as the iDocs business slowly went under. Everyone had known about his affair with the minister's wife, and once Sharon became his wife number two, even his most loyal clients felt uncomfortable with how things had unfolded. It all just seemed so dirty. Add to that their distaste for Sharon as an employee, and so many people left Perry's practice that he had to close one of his two locations. This meant that money was tight, which didn't thrill Sharon. She liked money. Forensic psychologist Helen Smith. She grew up very poor. She didn't really have anything. And because of that, she wanted money. She wanted it enough that when she was put in charge of payroll, she didn't pay into Perry's employees' unemployment insurance like she was supposed to. She just pocketed that money instead. That meant that when Perry had to let go of workers because he couldn't afford to keep them on, 
they were surprised to learn they had no unemployment benefits to fall back on because you only get those benefits if your boss pays into the program as legally required. Again, everything was a mess. Yet no one had any clue that this soap opera disaster of a personal life would take such a dark and deadly turn. If Sharon Douglas Fuller had expected marital bliss once she became Mrs. Perry Nelson, that didn't happen. When she had met Perry, Sharon had been impressed and drawn to his array of creature comforts. Author Greg Olson again. He had his own plane. He had a nice house. He had lots of money, his own business. And that was all appealing to her. But that started to fade largely because of Sharon. Not only did Perry lose clients because of their affair and her crappy work ethic, but she routinely pulled money from the business's till to cover all sorts of personal expenses. When other workers tried to rein her in, she was having none of it. And Perry wasn't great at standing up to her, even when his own livelihood was at stake. When Sharon got her heart set on building a custom home in the mountains, Perry acquiesced, even though their finances were tight. Sharon dubbed the mountain home the Roundhouse because its design centered on a circular great room with huge cathedral ceilings. The house was supposed to bring Sharon peace, but nothing seemed to satisfy her, including the two additional children she had with Perry. It seemed Perry's whole life was in tatters, and the longer he stayed with Sharon, the worse things got for him. Then, in the summer of 1983, he and a friend he'd made through Sharon, a guy named Gary Adams, took what was supposed to be a quick trip. Gary Adams was Dr. Nelson and Sharon's handyman. He worked on the property whenever they needed something done, which was a lot of work because it was a new place. And he was always there. If your spidey senses are tingling, you're one up on Perry. What Dr. Nelson didn't know was the handyman was pretty handy with his wife, too. Had he not been totally oblivious to the notion that the cheating woman he'd cheated on his wife with might be inclined to cheat with the handyman, maybe Perry would have been suspicious when Gary Adams asked to tag along on a trip to Denver. Maybe the fact that Gary, a married man with a young child, asked Perry not to mention the trip to anyone else might have set off some alarm bells. But Perry wasn't suspicious and welcomed Gary on the work trip without telling anyone else he had a last-minute tag-along. When Perry's demolished car turned up days later, no one outside of Sharon had any idea that Gary had been with him that day. But people did notice that Gary moved into the roundhouse with Sharon within days of Perry disappearing. And that at least got some tongues wagging. Most didn't suspect murder, though. The prevailing theory was that Perry, Gary, and Sharon perhaps had joined forces to commit insurance fraud by faking Perry's death. That theory seemed bolstered by the fact that Sharon began pushing the insurance companies to declare Perry dead almost immediately. Insurance companies don't like paying out on policies if there is any chance to avoid it, so the lack of a body let them drag their feet for quite a while. It would be 13 months after Perry's disappearance that his body would reportedly surface in a river. While the body was said to have been strangely well-preserved given the length of time it had been missing, Sharon moved so quickly to have it cremated that an autopsy was never performed. 
She got the life insurance money she'd been hoping for. While she told Perry's children that it was a modest amount, one of his daughters said she was suspicious enough to hire a lawyer in Colorado to track Sharon's spending. I heard that she was spending money like there was no limit. She had jewelry that it almost looked fake because there was so much of it. My attorneys told me that she had spent $150,000 on a horse ranch. It turned out she got about a quarter of a million dollars after Perry's body was found. Now, Sharon had been hoping for more than just money after this, though. She wanted Gary, not as a lover, but as husband number three. Gary wasn't so sure that was a role he wanted to fill. He didn't want to leave his wife, the mother of his child, so he bounced back and forth between the two women like a yo-yo. Sharon moved on briefly with one of Perry's best friends, and those two had something of a marriage ceremony, but it wasn't legally binding. She eventually left him and returned to Gary during one of their on-again periods. During an off-again time, though, Sharon connected with a new man named Glenn Harrelson via one of those Lonely Hearts Club ads. Glenn was a suburban Denver firefighter whose wife had divorced him. He was, by all accounts, a nice man who remained friends with their first wife after their split and had amicably worked out custody arrangements with their children. Former colleague George Garrett recalled that Glenn was a fireman first grade. He was a kind of a bald-headed guy, strong, very athletic. Photos show he had a warm smile and handsome face. Now, back in those days, instead of having dating apps, you had these dating ads. Someone would put an ad in the paper that had a service-provided phone number attached, and if someone else spotted that ad and wanted to connect, they could call that number and leave a message, eventually connecting if both parties decided they were interested. Both Glenn and Sharon were. After talking together on the phone a few times, they decided to meet. Sharon was sweet and kind-hearted, exactly the sort of woman Glenn wanted. He knew she had been unlucky in love, that she and her first husband, a minister, had divorced, and that her second husband had tragically died. So it made sense to him that she didn't seem to be looking for marriage, even though she was clearly searching for love. But something about that reticence made Glenn want to marry her all the more. He asked again and again, At first, Sharon declined, saying she and marriage were like oil and water. They just didn't mix. She insisted she was cursed, even. Their relationship was on and off, with the two seeing each other at most a couple of times a week, since Sharon spent most of her time in her mountain house, which was 200 miles away from Glenn's home in suburban Denver. Glenn tried to convince Sharon to move with her two children, the pair she had had with Perry, that is, But Sharon refused, saying she wanted her kids to grow up in a small town, not near Denver. She liked their school system and didn't want to uproot them. And that remained her stance, even after she eventually relented and agreed to marry Glenn. Speaking here is a different Glenn, one surnamed Trainer, who would eventually investigate this case. Sharon lived in Trinidad, where her kids were going to school and that uh, Glenn would generally go down there on his days off, spend time with her, and then travel back and work his shift uh, for the Denver Fire Department. 
It struck onlookers as an odd arrangement for a newlywed couple, but there were plenty of innocent ways to rationalize it. Forensic psychologist Helen Smith again. Given his job as a fireman, he might need to feel like he needs to be mentally calm, that the stress of being around kids was too much for him. She had gotten this house from her second husband, and given the fact that she had these two kids that wanted to stay in the same school system, it it would make sense to have two different residences. It wouldn't have to make sense for very long, though. On November 20th, 1988, just six months after Glenn married Sharon, police fielded a report of a house fire on Columbine Court in Thornton, Colorado. When investigators arrived, they found that most of the fire damage had occurred in an area near the garage entry to the house. They immediately suspected arson because they spotted what they identified as poor patterns, indicating that someone had doused the area with an accelerant before setting it ablaze. At first, it appeared no one had been home, which made the motive behind the fire murky. While a few things appeared ransacked, a lot of valuable items had been left untouched, so robbery seemed an unlikely goal. Soon, one of the firemen on the scene asked the inevitable question, where is Glenn? This was, after all, their colleague's house. They expected to find him there, assessing the damage alongside them. According to Greg Olson's book, The Black Widow, quote, As far as anyone knew, Glenn wasn't home. The fireman was nowhere to be seen. Further searching of the smoky confines of the house turned up nothing to indicate he had been home at all that day. A firefighter's shield and a packet of photographs were on the nightstand. The bed was made, the clothes in his closet were hung in the starch precision that commonly suggests military training. If he wasn't home, where was he? End quote. Well, it turned out he was in a crawl space. The fire had burned through floorboards and dumped his charred remains into a small opening that investigators initially missed. Once they found Glenn, they were confident that he had been murdered. That theory was bolstered by two shell casings discovered by detectives in the living area of the home and then confirmed later with an autopsy. Alerting Glenn's next of kin wasn't easy. They found his first ex-wife, who was heartbroken, and asked if they'd contacted his new wife, Sharon. Sharon's roundhouse out in the mountains didn't have a phone of its own, though, so detectives drove the 200 miles to tell her what happened in person. By then, word had spread to one of Sharon's older daughters, who herself was married and lived about a half hour from her mother. By the time investigators reached Trinidad, Sharon had already been told the news. She seemed bereft. It turned out she'd been right, she said. She really was cursed when it came to marriage. Elaine Taggart and Glenn Trainer were the two Thornton police officers assigned to investigate the suspicious 1988 death of newlywed Glenn Harrelson. Taggart was a six-foot-tall cop in her 30s with frosted hair and a solid reputation. Her partner was younger, just 28 years old, but no less tenacious, per author Greg Olson. The two were sent to Trinidad with a fairly simple, if sobering, job. They were to deliver the sad news to Sharon that her new husband had been found dead. 
No one had any reason to suspect Sharon might be involved, and in fact, it was clear from the start she hadn't even been in Thornton. Still, she needed to be told and interviewed, just in case she might be able to shed some light on who might have wanted Glenn dead. Their suspicions were piqued as soon as they learned that this wasn't the first husband Sharon had lost, however. When you are fairly early on in an investigation, it's really important that you keep an open mind. But, you know, when you hear that the guy's current wife, who doesn't even live with him, has a previous husband who died mysteriously, uh, that is something you, you pay pretty close attention to. In other words, it was a red friggin' flag, one that started flashing in neon when neighbors mentioned that Sharon seemed to have a lover in town by the name of Gary Adams. Now, if this were a wrongful conviction case, we'd have a problem at this point because the police had 100% decided Sharon was guilty. They weren't sure how she pulled off two murders, but even before they knocked on her door, they were pretty sure she was guilty. This can, in a lot of situations, lead to case-compromising confirmation bias with investigators ignoring clues that point away from their primary suspect. But Sharon made life a bit easier for everyone. After claiming she knew nothing about Glenn's death in the first interview with Tigert and Trainer, Sharon reached back out and offered to meet the investigators at a pizza joint to talk a bit further. And it was there that she spilled her guts. She said she couldn't stand living with the guilt anymore, but Tiger and Trainer had asked about Gary and her relationship with him, so the more skeptical out there might think that maybe she simply knew the jig was up and that she'd fare better if she came clean. Whatever her motivation, the officers not only recorded her confession, but they officially arrested her beforehand, making sure she couldn't claim coercion after the fact. Here's the story Sharon told. She and her lover, Gary Adams, plotted Perry's death in 1983 as a way to gain his life insurance and also get him out of the way for their own marriage to each other. While the two never did tie the knot, Sharon had given Gary about $60,000 of the insurance money she had collected. Sharon insisted the idea was Gary's, not hers, and that she wasn't all that keen on the plan, but she was so miserable with Perry and so in love with Gary that she went along with it. After the deed was done, Sharon said she had asked Gary for details about the death, but never got clear answers. As far as she knew, Gary had planned to beat Perry over the head while the two were on a pit stop during their road trip, but Perry had fought back so viciously that Gary lost control of him in the river, which swept the eye doctor away. Without a body to put back into the car, sealing the deal that the incident would look like a lone car accident, Gary still pushed the car off the mountainside. In truth, he wasn't 100% sure Perry was even dead when he did that. He had seen Perry float away in the river water, and he knew he had injured him pretty badly, but it was feasible that Perry might have survived the attack and washed ashore before drowning. So the first days after the attack were uncomfortable for Gary and Sharon, to say the least, who were worried Perry might show back up at home. After a few weeks, though, the couple felt more and more comfortable that Perry really was dead, and Sharon dropped the Grieving Widow Act full stop. Rumors swirled, but few centered on her being a murderer. She just seemed too nice and passive for that. 
But the idea that her relationship with Perry had soured enough that he had happily faked his death to leave her with her lover, well, that didn't seem so far-fetched. It didn't take long after that, though, that Sharon again proposed to murder her lover. This time, she was interested in sicking Gary Adams on Buzz Reynolds, that friend of Perry's she'd sort of fake married after Perry's death. Gary wasn't into it, though. He said it was too risky to kill another of Sharon's partners so soon after the first. And besides, since she and Buzz weren't legally married, what would be the point anyway? She might not even inherit a thing. Sharon dropped the matter, and soon, Gary dropped her, returning to his wife and child. Then, Sharon met Glenn Harrelson. After the two married in spring of 1988, the murder talk began anew. Gary was back on again, and she said that he reasoned this would be the absolute perfect crime because no one in Thornton, Colorado, had any idea who Gary was, and Sharon would have a solid alibi, what with her living 200 miles away and all. Both Sharon and Gary had long spent their portions of Perry's insurance money, so this scheme sounded attractive. Hell, it sounded foolproof. Sharon drew a map of the layout to Glenn's home, and one night, Gary drove there and laid in wait until the firefighter got home. Then he pounced, pummeling him in what he had hoped would appear to be an interrupted burglary. Once again, though, Gary underestimated how much of a fight his foe would put up. Glenn fought ferociously enough that Gary pulled out a gun and fired two shots into his head. After that, he found gas in Glenn's garage, doused the man's corpse, and set it ablaze. Now, as Sharon confessed this tale to police, she of course mitigated her own role in things. Although Sharon admits that she knew what Gary was going to do, she insists that she didn't take part in the murder. And now that the deed is done, she's afraid of what Gary might do to her. Whatever her actual role, Sharon gave police enough specific information that they were able to bolster her confession with actual evidence. For example, she had told them where they could find a note she had left to Gary at Glenn's house, and they found it. They also followed her instructions to discover Glenn's wedding ring, which Sharon had apparently asked to see as proof the job had been successfully carried out. With Sharon's confession in hand, police next rounded up Gary Adams. At first, he denied everything. But Sharon stuck by her confession, going so far as to actually plead guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. By doing so, she had the death penalty taken off the table and instead got life sentences in prison. Gary still denied any role in the deaths until he learned that Sharon planned to testify against him in trial. With that info, he shifted gears and instead followed her lead, pleading guilty to the crimes. He, too, was sentenced to life behind bars. The people left in Sharon's wake do not have kind words for her in hindsight, as you can hear here in this compilation of quotes from the Oxygen documentary. Sharon Harrelson was not a loving house mom whatsoever. She was a conniving woman that was out for Sharon Harrelson. She did a lot of blaming of Gary, but just by virtue of her statements, she basically admitted to soliciting Gary to commit these two murders. 
She talked about one of the murders being for love and the second one being for money, but clearly she had plenty to gain financially from both homicides. I don't know what kind of person can do that. Apparently she didn't much care about anything and just wanted money. Sharon Douglas Fuller Nelson Harrelson died in prison in 2017. Her former lover is now 79 years old and is still residing as inmate number 60757 in a Colorado correctional facility. While his next parole hearing is listed as November 2029, his estimated discharge date is listed as the year 9,999. To research this case, I read Greg Olson's book, American Black Widow, The Shocking True Story of a Preacher's Wife Turned Killer. While I liked the book, I will never forgive Olson for his repeated references to Sharon's quote-unquote special sauce, and no, he wasn't referring to her charisma. Gross, Greg. Just gross. I also bought the Oxygen documentary on the case, which was very helpful in rounding out additional voices to help tell the tale. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 